the Lord's uh, doing um, amazing things around here of late that have nothing to do with construction. Um, seriously, in the last a few weeks, we've seen uh, several folks profess Christ for the first time here. Uh, we're seeing uh, consistent uh, life change. A ton of repentance is, is happening. Um, I love when we can celebrate uh, those things. Uh, as you guys know, um, brick and mortar will change all the time. Uh, but as God changes our hearts, that's what we long to continue to celebrate. So let's celebrate tonight. Uh, art is, uh, is very, very subjective. Have you, have you found this out? Okay. Uh, literally, I could paint something, and I'm not a painter, right? But I could throw some paint on a, on a mural, okay? And I could take it down to the art museum, right? And I could get paid like several thousand dollars for you know, ultimately like 20 minutes worth of work that I developed this really long story of where it came from and what the inspiration was. When truth be told, the inspiration was, you know, if I could, you know, mix some Crayolas appropriately, right? Uh, so I thought, it, I thought it'd be a little bit of, of a fun exercise. If I, if I put up some, some famous artwork, okay, and we take a second and maybe try to guess what the inspiration was of the piece of art. Fair enough? Is that... Does that sound doable? Okay. So let's start here. Now, um, I, I always thought, I always thought that this was uh, a, a, a portrait portraying uh, the, you know, Area 51. That's what I thought, okay? Because when I, when I look at this painting, I, all I see is an alien on a bridge that's just seen a human for the first time. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of, that's kind of what I see, Right? And so, you know, we're sitting there, we're trying to understand, like, what in the world inspired this? Um, this painting, by the way, is worth a tremendous amount of money. I, I found this out today. Did you know how much the Mona Lisa is, is valued at right now? You know how much? One, literally, one billion dollars. It's true. One billion dollars. Okay. This painting, not quite that, okay? So here, here's what... Here's what uh, Edward Munch said about his inspiration. I was walking down the road with two friends when the sun set, uh, with the sun, when the sun set, uh, rather, the sky turned as red as blood. I stopped and leaned against the fence, feeling unspeakably tired. Tongues of fire and blood stretched over the bluish black, how do you, I've always, fjord, okay. My friends went on walking while I lagged behind, shivering with fear, then I heard the enormous, infinite scream of nature. That's what caused him to make that uh, drawing. We would have guessed, right? Of course. Of course. You're looking across the Fajorti. How do you pronounce it, right? And you see, you see skies filled, right? Okay. So we appreciate that. Uh, don't, don't put up the next slide quite yet. Listen. So, okay, almost. Almost. So this, this actually, I found out later, came to me as a mistext, okay? Uh, one, of our, uh, one of our folks who runs uh, part of our, uh, our technical piece of the evening, randomly, immediately after the worship gathering, um, I, 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 I got this. This is what he sent me in a text message. Go ahead. And I, I, I came to found out, find out later that he didn't mean to send this to me, um, but I just thought we could go, hey, Kip, so what was your, what was your inspiration for drawing this, and, and who did you mean to send it to? Like, that's what I'm really curious on, because I... A friend was asking you about this? They were asking you about chickens, or what? Like, 
Okay. Okay. I, I honestly can't hear a word you're saying, but I'm somewhat embarrassed for you that this has just happened. Um, so let's move on. Let's move on. Here, here's, a famous, here's a famous painting, okay? Here we go. American Gothic is the, the name of this. Uh, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of people that have uh, kind of made a parody of this painting. Uh, anytime I can get Beavis and Butthead in a sermon, um, I certainly want to try to do it, okay? Um, <laughs> now, th- this, what, what inspired this painting, like, you're looking at it and you're imagining, you know, a couple, they, they don't look happy at all, right? And it could be because the man's holding a pitchfork, you know, maybe he's, maybe this is like a threatening move. Uh, maybe they're struggling with farming at the time. Um, turns out that the painting is actually, uh, the, the man who painted it, it's actually his dentist and his sister. That's who, so they're not married. They're, they actually have no relationship at all. It's, it's his dentist and his sister. And he, here's what he said. Here's what he said about the painting, okay? Uh, there is satire in it, but only as there is satire in any realistic statement, of course, because artsy people can say anything, and it will suddenly make sense, okay? Because that first sentence, I'm like, I have no idea what he just said. Um, <laughs> These are types of people I've known all my life. I try to characterize them truthfully, to make them more like themselves than they were in actual life. What? What? <laughs> it's even happening. And, and the brother got paid. You know what I'm saying? Listen, so, some of us, we're missing our calling, okay? <laughs> I, I think it's a fair statement to say that just because someone uh, paints a picture, it doesn't mean that we're going to get the artistic value of what it is that they tried to accomplish. I, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, in another way, uh, let's, let's say it like this. Next slide. What happens when the artist's design gets misused, misinterpreted, or distorted? Right, like, so we could, again, we could take the initial alien-ish painting. He had this, like, deep, elaborate friend you know, picture in his mind as he painted it. What happens when we distort the portrayal that the artist was trying to get across? Uh, Let's say it another way. What happens when the creator has a very specific um, artistic design, a story that he unfolds right before our eyes? What happens when we Take that artistic design that he has magnificently portrayed. What happens when we misunderstand or misinterpret or distort or misuse? I want to propose to you tonight that what what happens when we do that is something so catastrophic that it's something that is rarely, if ever, spoken about. And so listen, tonight... If you've read ahead, you know what we're studying tonight. Oh, dear heavens. Okay. I'm just going to read the subtitle for you, and you'll get a little bit of an understanding. The subtitle is Head Coverings. Okay? That's what we're talking about tonight. And so, and so already you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So how are we going to go from head coverings to distorting God's creative artistic portrayal? That's why you're here to see how it's going to happen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here we go. Head coverings, my friends. This is one of the most um, ran away from passages in the Bible. 
Okay? My guess is you haven't had a Bible study around this passage. Okay? If you've ever studied 1 Corinthians on your own, my guess is you've gotten to this point and you've, you want to skip a few. Chapter 12 looks really nice. Okay? Like, that's probably what you've done. It's unfortunate. Because what is in this text, though very difficult, is beauty that I'm serious, I believe has rarely been uncovered. And so I want to pray right now that God will do a work through a very strange passage and that our hearts will be changed to marvel at a creator deeper than when we walked in here tonight. So God, do what only you can do, please, right now. Stir our hearts, draw us into yourself. Please, God, take this passage that you certainly intended for Scripture and help us not just understand it intellectually, but, Father, I pray that it would cut us open, sharper than a two-edged sword. In your great and holy name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <laughs> here we go, verse 2. Now I commend you, Paul says, this is, this is immediately after he's talked about imitating himself. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain, he says, the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. This is a powerful statement. When I hear the word traditions, I instantly think of family traditions. Uh, again, appreciate my mother being here this evening. My mom is the king of tradition. Uh, the queen, rather, okay? Um, she loves traditions, okay? So every Thanksgiving, we have traditions. And, and uh, Christmases, we have traditions. And Easter, we have traditions. I, I love that about her. A part of what traditions do is they help you celebrate. They help you remember. They help you, uh, they help you have a heart of gratitude. Well, in this case, what Paul is talking about is the traditions we can surmise of God's word. Of the word that's been preached, but also the word that has been passed, both in and through the churches that Paul has planted, but certainly uh, some of which has been embraced by the Jews. There is an Old Testament component to it, but he encourages them, it seems, I commend you. You've maintained the traditions even as I delivered them to you. You've remembered them. They've held power uh, in, in you just as a tradition does for us. And then verse 3, the ever-classic ever verse 3. Okay. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, um, I fully recognize anytime you read a passage like this in the Scripture that some of you instantly get angry. Uh, before you begin to throw things at me this evening, I want to direct your anger, okay? If I, if I may. Um, all we're going to do tonight is study God's Word. Is that cool? That's what we're going to do. I'm not going to extrapolate my own opinions from verse 3. Instead, we're going to walk piece by piece through God's word, and then together understand what God's word says on a passage like verse 3. So no one can leave here and say, Mark said, instead we leave here saying God's word said, and God's word is good, and God's word is powerful. Oh, fair enough? Okay. I don't know if you're fair enough with me. Either way, we're going to go. It's important in this verse, I believe, to start at the end. 
Next slide. So I want to begin with the phrase, and the head of Christ is God, which drums up some really, really interesting conversations, right? Hold on a second. Hold on a second, Mark. What about the triangle, man? What about the trinity? What about God being three in one? He's Father and He's Son and He's Spirit somehow all together. And yet this passage gives us some indication that there's like some authority that the Father has over the Son. All right, let's see from God's Word. Next slide, check this out. I hope this helps. John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is good enough for us. This is a component of their doubt. Jesus says in verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Look at this. Whoever has seen me has seen what? Seen the who? Seen the Father. How can you say show us the Father? Like I've shown you myself. Do you not believe that that, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Okay, okay. So, so verse 3 gives us this idea that like, there's some submission piece to Jesus under the Father, but this verse talks about equality. Fair enough? Okay. Let's see another text. I think this will help us. John 5. Uh, this was why the Jews were, uh, were seeking all the more to kill him. He's healing on the Sabbath, teaching on the Sabbath. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but look at this. He was even calling God his own Father... Making himself what? Equal to God. Uh, So Jesus teaches on the Sabbath. He then says, and all throughout John's gospel does so, I am equal to the Father. And because of his claim of that, uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, they want to kill him. So the first uh, understanding we can say is that obviously... A Jesus and the Father are one. They're equal. But then we have something happen in the Garden of Gethsemane that doesn't just prove uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, but shows us the extent of it. Next slide. And he withdrew to Jesus from them about a stone's throw. Depends on your arm here how far away that was. But he, he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what? Not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. And yet at the same time, towards the end of his in the flesh and blood life on this earth, before he ascends, Jesus is praying Uh, As he begins to reel from the suffering that's going to be coming, he he prays that the will of the Father would be done. In other words, he submits himself to the Father. Though they're equal, though though they share equality, there is still a level of submission. Does that not find anyone else as really, really interesting? And I'll take one step further, really, really powerful. Because the word submission is a, a, is a cuss word in our culture. You want to talk about submitting uh, kids to parents? Cuss word. You want to talk about uh, biblically uh, us submitting to the government? Big cuss word, especially now. Uh, you want to talk about uh, us submitting, you know, wives submitting to their husbands? Oh my goodness, I've, I've never seen so much rage. And yet, in this verse 3, 
Paul says Christ submits to God. If he's going to make a case on submission, and if Jesus, the Son of Man, submits to God, and it was his joy to do so, don't you think that's a pretty compelling case for submission across the board? But what happens is we start talking about submission, and we run from it because we don't see the joy there within. My hope is, even in just having your eyes open to this point specifically, that all of a sudden when we start talking to wives, all of a sudden when we start talking about understanding of submission to government, and so long as it doesn't cause us to be disobedient, and on and on, a children submissive to their parents. Instead of this command being burdensome, like 1 John says, my prayer is, is that all of a sudden we find joy in submission. Let me take it one step further. Joy in obedience. It's our joy to obey. It was Christ's joy to obey, submit himself to the Father, even though it meant his death, it also meant his life, a resurrection, and redemption of sins for all those who would profess his name. Is anyone getting, right? Come on. So next slide. Then we can easily say, we can easily say that though a Christ has a head in terms of authority of God, they share, they share equality. Okay? So now let's make one more step. Next slide. Let's move on to this piece. The head of every man is, is Christ. Well, I, I love the language here uh, because what men have done, chauvinistic men, domineering men, is what they have done is they have taken passages like 1 Corinthians 11.3, Ephesians 5, many others, and they have pointed to them and say, you see this? You see this woman? You need to be submissive. You need to be silent. You need to shut your mouth. And what it's done is it has attempted to take the joy, especially for females in this case, out of submission, out of obedience to the Lord. While forgetting that this line is pretty poignant, men, wouldn't you say? The head of every man is Christ. In other words, above every single man is the headship, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus making his authority rule and reign on top of us as we submit to his will, to his desires for his glory. So let's look at some texts that I think will help. Next slide. This is in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so now go. I'm the head of you, he, he, he says to the disciples. All authority has been given to me. And so because all authority has been given to me, then, then somehow I'm, I'm able not just to give that authority to you, but but you're able to see that you fall in subjection to me. Okay, so on that point, look at Hebrews 2. I think this helps us in that understanding. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, which is, I hope, very, very encouraging to you. In other words, there's going to be a day when it's very, very clear what's in subjection to King Jesus. In fact, let me say this. Philippians 2 says that there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Is anyone anxious for that day? I mean, everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Right now, we don't see the full subjection to Christ. But there will be a day where all of a sudden our faith will be sight, the song says, and we will watch everyone bend the knee to King Jesus. I can't wait for that day. But verse 9, we will see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, took on flesh and blood, came to the earth. 
namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Everything is put underneath his subjection even though he humbled himself, submitted himself to the will of the Father, took on death, tasted death so that redemption of sins could come. So next slide. Let's, let's say it this way. If the head of every man is Christ, men, then maybe in your marriage you should spend way less, way, way, way less time preaching to your wife about submission and way, way, way more time embracing submission of Christ in your life. Maybe that's what we should be doing as men. And, and when that happens, I'm just saying, in a God-fearing marriage... When that happens then, men, when our wives are watching us in submission to Christ, don't you think then all of a sudden the idea of following us as we go to Christ then becomes so much more joyful for this God-fearing, loving sister and daughter of Christ that he's given you to marry. But if we find ourselves not in submission to Christ while pointing to others, well, you need to, you need to step back, woman. It's not just that we're teaching chauvinism, it's that we're embracing it to the fullest extent and embodying the very abuse, the very abuse uh, that maybe your wife has experienced before or maybe she's fearful that you'll become. So if Christ submits to God and if man submits to Christ, now all of a sudden we can wrestle with this, okay? The head of a wife is her husband. Um, I know for some of you, this has um, evoked tremendous pain, uh, a ton of confusion. To connect this verse with joy is very, very, very far-stretched for you. But what if tonight, what if tonight, in the teaching about head coverings, all of a sudden it became way, way, way less about women, your submission to your husband and way, way, way more about your submission to God. Because what he's done is he's mapped out a very clear a rhythm, a diagram. We'll get there in a second. Uh, tonight I desire for the females in this room that have sat under domineering, chauvinistic, abusive men. Listen, I hurt for you and with you. whether it was sexual abuse or whether he said comments that have hurt you for years or whether you grew up in a home with a father who did those things. Listen, I'm so incredibly sorry. Some of those things have jaded, distorted your view of this passage. What we have the opportunity now is to embrace the freedom and the joy that comes in submitting, listen, not to a man but to a God, okay? So let's look at this. I hope this is helpful. Next slide. Ephesians chapter 5, this this certainly isn't the only text, but we'll hang here a couple different examples in this particular passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to what? You see, as to what? As to the Lord. We submit to God first, and then God has placed the, the man or the husband in our life, and then we submit to that man. For the husband is the head of the wife, okay? So again, 1 Corinthians 11 isn't Paul all of a sudden ranting on the church in Corinth against women. Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as is himself its Savior. Well, if, 
if the husband is the head of the wife, and then that gets uh, compiled with Jesus being the head of the church, then all I see is potential beauty. Anyone else? Again, I know it's gone very, very awry for many of you. But if the relationship of Christ and the church is put on husbands and wives, then that means the potential for joy and beauty is at our access, right? Okay. Even if Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior, so as the church submits to Christ every man, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I want to help you understand the holistic piece of what he's saying. Next slide. The wife submits to the husband who is submitting to Christ, who is submitting to God, which means when the wife submits to the husband, she's submitting to God. When the man submits to Christ, he's submitting to God. And so the beauty of this whole pattern biblically is that to embrace this is our joy. But I think it also evokes some questions, many of which I want to try to answer tonight. Next slide. Do you find yourself resting in this aspect of God's design? This is God's design. This is the way he's painted it. Artistically, he has made it this way. It's not a value issue at all. In any of these passages that we've seen, does God devalue the woman? Oh my goodness, no. Not even close. Just like we saw about Christ and God. Was it a value issue? Was it a value issue? No. It was a what? A role issue. Set by whom? By Father God. Now what's happened culturally, right, is we have often made it a value issue. Oh, woman, you need to sit down. Woman, you need to be quiet. Why? Because you have less value than man. That is and will never be biblical. Period. You're not going to find it in the scripture. It's not there. Husbands and wives under the person of Christ. Remember what scripture says? Neither what? Male or female. In Christ, all sons and daughters. So can we be freed first from that? This isn't a value issue. This is a role issue. Which means then, women and men, to embrace our role is our joy. Uh, Women, to hold against this role, not only means that you're missing out on beautiful pieces that God has for you, but you're also potentially stepping in the way of your husband, not just to lead you spiritually, but to celebrate the grace of God and your marriage with you with you. So tonight, right now, as you come in here, do you find yourself resting in this design? Are you like, heck no. I see that painting, God, and it's pretty poor. What starts to happen as we start to wrestle with this, you start to see how problematic all of a sudden this becomes. Here's what we've done, is we've said, hey, all this like submission stuff, this is a cultural issue. If we make it a cultural issue, which we're going to study certainly tonight, do you understand what we're doing with the Lord? Do you understand what we're doing? Then we might as well say the cross is a cultural issue. Redemption of sins must have been a cultural issue as well. 
No, these are for our joy. That's why the second question is so pertinent. Next slide. Look at this. Is there something that is causing this clear design to be distorted in you tonight? And this is what I, I just want to have a moment with you, all of you, all of you. Men, your submission to Christ. Women, your submission to men, ultimately to God, all of us. Is there something that's creating the distortion? Was there something that happened 10 years ago? Was there an abuse that you found yourself continually in that has now completely jostled all of your doctrine on this issue? Is there a habitual sin that for years and years and years like took your heart and just broke it and broke it and broke it and shattered it? And so now because of that, you find yourself looking at this, not freed, not brought to joy at all, not even seeing it as a submission to God issue. You can't get past this thing. The first thing I want everyone to do tonight, men, your submission to God, women, ultimately your submission to God, is there something that has happened in your life that is distorting this? That's taking the beautiful painting, the beautiful design that God has, and is all of a sudden making it a convoluted mess that has even caused you to run away from it. Is there something? Just name it right now. As we go on tonight, like, it's going to be quintessential that you at least have in your mind an understanding if there has been a piece of your life that has distorted it. All right. All of that said, I think we're ready to move on to head coverings. Here we go. You guys ready for this? I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Every man, okay, who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head of obviously right but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven I don't even think we need to explain any of that you guys know what I'm saying of course we get it obviously okay Step by step, baby steps. Okay, next slide. Uh, on the men's side, here's what's happening. This is a man in a statue. I've, I've tried to help us with some pictures of what's going on here as best I can. In ancient Greek and Roman world, here's what would happen, okay? A man at times in worship of pagan gods would take a piece of his, for lack of a better term, toga, okay? And they would take that toga in worship of a, a pagan god and they would throw it on their head. What Paul is saying is, listen, men, when you do this, it's dishonoring. Here's why. In ancient Greek and Roman world, and particularly, particularly for our case in Corinth, a head covering was worn by a woman as significance to that she was sitting in subjection or authority to a man, was married, we could say. So listen, you know who didn't wear head coverings in Corinth? You know who didn't? Prostitutes wore no head coverings. Also, their heads were shaven. Okay? Prostitutes and those who were adulterers. So when a woman was wearing a head covering in ancient Corinth, then what it was saying is, I'm taken. Like, don't step to this. Okay? And so what Paul is saying is, man, when you put on a head covering, you're distorting the role. A head covering, in this case culturally, is for the woman 
to show like a married, a wedding ring that she's taken. And so, man, when you throw your toga up on your head like a pagan god ritual, then all of a sudden things are getting really, really confusing. You're distorting the role. Fair enough. So the woman then, if she prays and prophesies, next slide, with this on her head, okay, um, and, and she like, she takes it down, she prays or prophesies, and we'll wrestle with that in a couple weeks about orderly worship. But if she does so uncovered, then she's confusing her role. Uh, because then all of a sudden she's praying and prophesying, but uncovered, we're going to get a mixed message because that's what the prostitute does. That's what the... Uh, uh, that's what the, 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 the porn, the, the, those who are struggling with sexual immorality do. Okay. So, head coverings are Paul's example to Corinth about the application of a woman submitting to her husband, a husband submitting to Christ, and Christ submitting to God. Does that make sense? So what he's not doing is saying, okay, uh, 1,900 years later, all right, men, you shouldn't put your toga on your head. Okay? That's going to be bad. That's going to be dishonoring. No. This is his example for Corinth. He's not saying, women, hey, listen, I don't see many head coverings up in here. You better not be praying or prophesying up in here. Otherwise, it'll be dishonoring. In fact, you need to grow that hair a little bit longer while we're at it. Right? Like, he's not, he's not saying that. He's saying, in Corinth, this is the example, the application of what's happening and how it is that you're to... Embrace it and present it. So verse 6 only adds some, some more to this. Look at this. This is pretty interesting. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. How many females here with short hair? Just by, okay. You, you, you can own this. Like just because you're, you're seeing this in the Bible now and it seems like it's negative, you're like, mm, not me. And we can all see it short. It's, it's okay. All right. <laughs> for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. In other words, again, Corinth, prostitutes, those who are sexually immoral. Okay? So keep her head covered. That's what he's saying. But again, uh, there's a difference. Uh, we, we see in some ancient Near East religions that women sometimes only have their eyes uh, being shown by a veil, okay? You guys have seen pictures of that. This is not that. This is, you guys just saw the picture, just a head, a head covering. Okay, you ready for this one? Here we go, verse seven. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Men, every single one of you, I know, are tempted to use this verse, right? Honey, you're the glory of me. It's right out of the scripture, babe. I'm going to get a tat. Heidi, you're my glory. Um. <laughs> Look at his explanation, though. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Verse 3 is his principle. The next verses provide a stage for what's happening in Corinth. And now he moves into further arguments, okay? So to help us walk through this journey, how in the world can he say that a, a woman is the glory of man and how can that even be somewhat appropriate? 
I want to help you with that. Next slide. Here we go. Of course, Genesis 2. Let's rock it. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. One of the most famous quoted passages of should be of every single man on the face of the planet. It is not good for man to be alone. Amen, brothers. And some of you who are sitting next to women and you didn't hear your man, uh, amen, you, you guys can feel free to leave here and talk it through right now, okay? <laughs> Go ahead, talk it out. Why didn't you say amen to that, right? Mark set it up on a silver platter, brother. Preach that amen, okay? It is not good for man to be alone. So here's what happens. I will make him a helper fit for him. So what then happens is God brings all the animals in front of Adam and he starts naming them. Okay, which would have, of course, been a great job. Uh, we could say that he didn't do a great job on some, better on others. But just after he names the animals, here's what happens uh, after this in Genesis chapter 2. Look at this beautiful, uh, beautiful text. Yeah, here we go. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And you can imagine this taught so many different ways. Animal, that's not going to work. Here's a name. Animal, that's not going to work. Here's a name. He's looking for someone that's a, a suitable helper, right? The giraffe, not going to cut it, okay? So... So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. This is crazy, right? Awesome. And the rib that the Lord, and I love too that God didn't like to tell Adam what was going on, right? He just like waves his hand over Adam, and like Adam like, you know, it's pretty funny to me. Anyway, and the rib... And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and now brings her to the man. And all of us can imagine this moment, right? Like, man, I know all those animals didn't cut it, but how about this one? Come on, can't you imagine that? Listen, dudes who are married or dating in this, like the first time you saw the gal, right? And you were just, whoa, you felt like God was like, boom, brother. Like, pretty good, right? Pretty good, right? Okay. So look at this. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. That's what 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 8 and 9 say. For man was not made from the woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. She came out of the man and she was also made to be a helper to the man. come back to God's design. I know some of you are like, yeah, God got it wrong. He got it wrong. It should have been the opposite way. Um, this shouldn't have been so. And again, there's reasons very potentially in your life that have brought you uh, to that statement. But when Paul says that the woman is the glory of man, what he's bringing in essence is that because the woman came out of the man and man made in the image of God, certainly the female is as well. And so though it's not a piece of like his trophy, it's an aspect of the radiance of God's glory coming straight from the relationship as the two, listen, become one flesh. Okay? It's not a chauvinistic statement. It's not something men, when you go home tonight, you should say, I'm so glad you're my glory. Instead, maybe tonight you thank the Lord again for the work that he's done and providing it. And I know some of you are like, but Mark, I'm not married. What's the application for me? We have some. Just hold on. Verse 10, one of the craziest verses in all of Scripture, honestly. Okay? Let's look at verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? <laughs> what? 
Hold on, let me read it again. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, of course, right? Does anyone else feel like, like Paul's a bit erratic here, right? But he's not, but he's not. Think of the beings that are daily and consistently, Hebrews builds the best case for this, daily and consistency in subjection to God. Think about it. Who would it be? It would be the angels ministering, consistently worshiping. Uh, we uh, sometimes, Hebrews says, are entertaining angels, which is a whole, whole other topic. And so now he's bringing these angelic beings in, into the mix to say they are in eternal subjection to God. And so listen, it's a beautiful thing. You see the angels celebrating this because they're celebrating God. And so maybe, just maybe, your heart's starting to change. Verse 11, then he adds this. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And this is huge in our argument tonight. And all things are from God. He makes this statement to make very, very clear Verse 3 is not a cultural issue, it's a creation issue. It's a role issue. It's an opportunity for joy. Anytime, women, you don't find yourselves in submission to God, you are losing out on so much joy that's yours. Men, men, any single time you find yourself out of submission of God, oh my goodness, the joy that is being lost in obeying a good father. This isn't a chauvinistic issue. This is not a cultural issue now. This is a creation issue. This was, listen, God's design. The question is, are you okay with it? Can I take one step further? You don't have a choice, so I'm just going to do it. Um, If God is just an idea, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. If God is merely an idea for you, then what you have done is you have said, and noted to God what his design should be. Hey, God, here's what your design should be in this area, so go ahead and make it so. And listen, God, I know that your design is this whole submission thing. Yeah, but in reality, God, it would be much better if you were submissive to me. So I'm going to say, you're going to do, and I'll call you God, and it'll be great. We'll high-five at the end, and I'll be in heaven forever. If God is an idea then you tell God what his design is. When God is God, you celebrate all facets of his design. God, if it's your design, then I believe it's good. I wrestle with it. I struggle with it in my heart. I'm even like battling because of this past thing that happened or this current thing I'm struggling with. I'm not saying that I I totally understand it, but if, if you're God and if it's your design, then it is artistry and I long, I long to find joy in it. Big difference. So one more indicator on whether God is an idea or a God for you. So he really, really hammers home his argument here in verse 13 to 15, by going nature on us. Okay, look at this. Judge for yourselves now. We've made the argument really, really clear. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? To pray to God with her head uncovered? What would your answer be to that in this context? Thank you. No, okay. I hope we've done a better job than that so far, okay? Like, no. Okay, judge for yourselves. Look at this. Does not, this is awesome, (laughs) does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. Now, I want to pause there. I want to pause there. Brandon, I wish we had the picture. 
So how, how old were you? Okay, till, till fifth grade. So I know, I know you guys have seen Brandon, um, awesome, awesome gift to the body. Um, Brandon uh, shared with me that he, up until fifth grade, had long hair. So how long did it go? Down, it was down to your buttocks? Okay. Are you serious? Dude, that's embarrassing. So, um, so next week we'll picture, all right, for sure, for sure. It'll be our opener. We'll open with it, no doubt, okay. And so I know some of you dudes in here as well have long hair. Some of you, not so much, and not by your choice, okay? So how many don't have long hair and it's not by choice here, okay? Come on, be proud. You're bald and proud, okay? Okay, not many, all right? I can see the baldness, all right? All right? Now listen, I, I've done as much research as I can here. Listen, true story, true story. Testosterone, that's right, we've gone there. Testosterone, okay, speeds up the hair development and the hair fallout process. Did you guys know that? I'm not saying it does that in everyone, and I'm not suggesting that if you have more hair, you have low T. I heard that on a commercial. But what I am saying, okay, what, what I am saying is that testosterone speeds up. Renee, is that true? You're a, you're a nurse, is that true? Boom, substantiated, it's a nurse, it's true, Okay. <laughs> Listen, so men, that gives you an out now, okay? It gives you an out because if you're bald and you're like, look, I got testosterone, man. (laughs) So I want to make sure what he's doing here. What Paul is doing culturally is he's saying, listen, 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 okay? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Why? Because naturally man doesn't have long hair. It does not mean that now if you have long hair, you're sinful. He's trying to make a point. But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? Hello, right? So he's pointing to the fact, which was certainly true in antiquity, that the longer hair that a female had, often it showed more worth. Okay? You rarely, if ever, see a queen, a picture of a queen, with you know, super short hair. She's got like hair like Brandon, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's, that's what she's got, okay? For her hair, look at this, is given for her covering. Estrogen then, I've heard, okay, Renee, confirm this or deny, it slows the process. Is that true? Okay, absolutely, right? So this is what's happened. He's made his argument based on a clear principle. He then drove the argument home with further evidence to then say this in verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. It's unbelievable how well Paul knows his hearers. It's unbelievable how God, inspiring to write the scripture through Paul, would know how difficult it would be to hear this text even 1,900 years later, plus some. That it would create and drum up in us potentially even a spirit of contention. So what does Paul make very, very clear? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Why? Because if you're distorting the artistry of God, you must understand the ramifications. So let's make this summary statement then so that we can continue to journey tonight. Some of the Corinthian Christians were distorting God's design of the roles of husband and wife. Ultimately, not submitting to God's authority. That's the issue. Is the issue head coverings? It's the example. 
It's the practice. But this is what's happening. A distortion of the roles, therefore getting a distorted view of the God that they're worshiping. Now, I want to help us in all this, make this very, very practical. Next slide. Let's look at this. When we distort God's design, whatever piece of God's design we distort, here's what happens. We, number one, we believe our design is better. Uh, In this case, wives, when you uh, come up with a plan that doesn't include submission, what you're saying then is, uh, Lord, instead of submitting, I'm just going to submit to you a better plan. And the better plan is, God, I, I, run, I run the show here. That's the, that's the plan. And God, if you submit to that, then we're good. And you'll be my God and I'll be your goddess, right? What, what happens when we distort the design, the artistry of God is we believe holistically that our plans are better. We've got a better idea. We can do it better, execute it better. I know it's very, very plainly said in that way, but do you understand how how blasphemous that is? Could you imagine, like, if the Lord was here? I love using this example because it makes it so clear for us. If the Lord was here and we walked up to him and he said, yeah, so here's my design uh, for the created order of how uh, men and women will submit ultimately to me. And we looked up and he's like, that's a horrible plan, God. Best of luck with that. And he was there in all of his glory and radiance and who he was. And yet, isn't that what we do? God, I know, you, I know that you said this in your word, but actually I've got a better idea for that piece specifically. If I just indulge my flesh, then it's all going to be good. It's not submission to you. Uh, next a slide, when we distort God's design, number two, we put ourselves in the place of sovereign. If we were kings and queens for a day, if we were God for a day, have you ever had that question come up in a small group setting? If you were God for a day, what would you do? Think about it. Like if you had the the sovereign, you know, hand all to yourself for one day, what would you do? It seems like a far cry, but the reality is this is how many of us exist. Oh yeah, that's kind of funny. That's like talking about winning the lottery. And yet most of us exist every single day like we're sovereign. We wave the wand. We want God again to bend his knee to us. We put ourselves on the throne. We take God's beautiful artistry and say, not good enough. Hey, God, I'll paint it better. I got one better for you. Again, I know it seems like a far cry, but this is precisely what we do in our sin. Precisely. Number three, when we distort God's design, We are fearful that his design won't work. I've shared this story before. I want to share it again so that everyone understands this very, very clearly. We used to use a stat in Acts 29 about church plants. The truth is, after three years, 80% of church plants shut their door. And what we have communicated as a network is that that's failure. If those churches shut their doors, then they failed. But, but what if, what if God would call a man and a woman and their family to plant a church, step out in obedience, 
only to teach them about his character, only to see the door shut a couple years later, only to make their marriage stronger and their lives more glorifying of him. And then somehow we're going to say that's failure? Think of it. Some of the things that you've attributed to failures in your life that weren't sin. What you've done is you've taken God's design and said, well, that must be failure, when what if God was using those things to show you more of himself? So when we're fearful that his plan won't work, we're the ones that are defining success. If it works like this, then it works. But if it works like you want it to work, then it's broke. You You guys see the problem here. When we submit to God, just like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though it was going to cost him his life, I think you'd agree it worked really well. Sacrifice, redemption of sin, forgiveness for all of us. We can exist in grace tonight. Man, God's artistry was brilliant. And yet all of us, I believe, in the garden would have walked away and said, no way, no way. But his plans work. His artistry is beautiful. His design is marvelous. There's a number four, but I want to I wait on it. And I want to show you two areas specifically that I feel like we've distorted. Number one is this. Next slide. Number one is sanctification. We could talk about gender roles. How about we talk about sanctification, growth in Christ? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth. Mark, Mark, how possibly could I distort God's plan of sanctification? Can I show you? Okay, next slide. Look at this. Okay, this is how First Thessalonians continues. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, hang on, look what this ends with. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Next slide, okay? First Thessalonians ends with this. Next slide. Were you with me there? There you go. Look at this. For God has not called us for impurity, but in what? Come on. In holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but who? But God who gives what? Here we go. Come on. Gives what? His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. I'm just going to confess to you my struggle. Culturally, I grew up, busyness and holiness. Wasn't the fault of my parents, wasn't like, I just, I just did, I just grew up, busyness and holiness. The more that I did, the better God loved me. Do you understand what a distortion of sanctification that is? Because who does it put the onus on? Who? Me. I will obey, I'll pull up my bootstraps, I'll do better tomorrow, God will love me more then, he'll write the thank you note that I've been a good son and servant. You guys understand? It's a complete distortion of, it's my will that you would be sanctified, and guess what? I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. Oh, my design is beautiful. Here, here's my spirit. What my spirit's going to do is it's going to take you to obedience of me. My spirit is going to take you to submission of me. Instead, what did I do? No, no, no. The harder I work, the more that I do, the, the deeper that I run, then, then, then God will love me. Completely distorting the beauty of the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, what blasphemy. Ooh, I'm really glad that those days are, they're not done. 
For me tonight, I desire to not just confess, but to walk in the freedom of Christ in the ways that I still try to earn God's love, period. Lord, please continue to sanctify me and my brothers and sisters by the direction of your Holy Spirit. And not because we believe that somehow our works will cause a deeper love of you of us, but somehow we'll find our identity deeper in Christ, period. Lord, do that work right now in us. Are we we together? Okay, so that's sanctification, but, but what about this? Next slide. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 said, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have you in any way distorted the gospel? Have you distorted redemption? Instead of, and he has delivered, is there anything in you that believes that you've delivered? That you've submitted, that you've obeyed perfectly. That you'll stand before God and he'll say, oh my goodness, you fed 50 homeless people, you were insanely hospitable, you loved your family, you loved your enemies, and on and on and on. Or will we stand before God and he will say, I see you through the lens of my son Jesus. When we distort the gospel, do you understand what we're doing? We're taking an entire story of redemption and we're crumpling it in our hands when we have the joy to rest in it's his work of deliverance. Come on, please. So, then all of a sudden, number four circles back around. One of the things that happens in counseling is ultimately you get to this place where you, you have to wrestle with, your, um, with issues that you had with your parents. Uh, many times it's with your father. And then based upon those um, issues, then you begin to unravel maybe why it, is, why it is that you are the way you are. Is it possible that what we've done with God is we have balked at his design and we could get to this place tonight where ultimately they become God's issues. Well, it's God's fault. My lack of submission is his problem. He had a poor design. My lack of submission to him is because this happened back here. Can I just say something really, really bold in all compassion? Some horrific and heinous things have been done to many of us in this room. Do any of those horrific and heinous things warrant us to a life of rebellion against God? In other words, because, for instance, I was abused in this period of my life. That's some of your story. Does that then mean you can look up at the creator and say, well, God, listen, I know I'm living in rebellion and not submission to you, but this happened to me. Does it make rebellion of God any less sinful? 
And so we come to moments like this, and what we believe is that we just need to learn a different methodology. Oh, yeah, you're right. I need to learn how to submit better. And I hate, I hate all of the heinous and horrific things and abuses that have been done. Women who have, been, uh, who have had chauvinistic men or fathers or even abusive men, uh, I, all of it. I hate it for you. I break with you. None of those, none of those will stand up against the Lord when you try to blame your story on your sin. And so tonight, in spite of all of the design that we have distorted, we have a chance tonight to repent. To ask God for a deeper belief that his story is beautiful. From the, from the submission structure all the way down to loving our enemies, believing that in every facet of it, it's our joy. So guess what? To those who have been wronged and abused and hurt and maligned, you have the chance tonight in the joy of Christ to say, I've blamed a lot of things on my life in this, and they certainly have affected me. But maybe tonight it begins a long journey of healing as I rest in Christ and stop blaming so much. God has painted a magnificent story of redemption and tonight every single one of us can rest in it. That he sent his son, that his son lived perfectly, that his son died on a cross, that his son resurrected, that his son ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand and all of a sudden his son will come back for the church. What a beautiful, magnificent design. Tonight, my friends, my brothers and sisters, rest in it, repent of ways we've fought against it and instead embrace the creator again. Let's stand together, come on. Father, help us believe tonight that it's our joy. I pray, God, that you would heal the Wounds that, that have stricken so many of us, that have distorted our view of you. God, please heal those wounds tonight, not just so we could be freed from those, those wounds, but that's so we could see you clearly. That we could encounter you, God, in real and powerful ways, unhindered by our past. So I'm asking, God, right now that you would loose the captives. That you would, God, heal things in this room, God, that have been bound up for years and years. Tonight, God, will you help us submit to who you are as creator and stir our hearts to repentance as we bend the knee and as the church together say, we agree. Let's say amen tonight together, church. Come on.